documented 25 seconds. 20 seconds and counting. T-minus 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 12, 11, 10, 9. Ignition sequence start. 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. As Apollo 11 does its roll program, this podcast now does its roll program. The tape is rolling. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. My name is Grant Cameron, and you're listening to the Paranormal UFO Consciousness Podcast. Thank you for taking time from your life to be here. Here is uh, part two of the Area 51 story. Uh, based upon uh, a three-part series that I did for my radio show, The Cameron Files. I'd like to acknowledge uh, Stacy Hoskins for helping me with the uh, intro and the exit audios and clearing up some of my uh, tapes. I really appreciate it. So here's part two of the Area 51 story based upon the research that I did starting in 1989. This is Grant Cameron, and you're listening to The Cameron Files. Tonight, I'm going to do Area 51, Part 2. And just as an update, um, in a, next month, I will be doing a presentation on contact modalities, which I think is extremely important. And I may get into um, some DNA discussion with experiencers. And I will also be doing a presentation on red flags in the modern uh, disclosure story with ATIP, TTSA, this whole thing. I'll be doing a presentation on that and dealing with things that I think are red flags. As to part two of the Area 51 story, when I left the story last week, we were at the position where Bob Lazar was doing interviews with EG&G in Las Vegas after putting in resumes, according to John Leary, put in a bunch of resumes to National Labs, and after putting a phone call in to Edward Teller, who he had met in 1982 at Los Alamos. And I maintain this is one of the clearest red flags in the whole Area 51 story to determine what exactly happened in the story. The first question in the interview or in the second interview, whichever uh, version of the story is correct, the question that was asked to Bob Lazar is, what's your relationship to John Lear and what do you think about him? Now, what Lazar apparently replied was, yes, I know John Lear, he's an acquaintance of mine, and he sticks his nose in places it doesn't belong. And when he told that story to John Lear, he sort of added, the one thing I forgot to tell him was, I like to stick my nose in places where it doesn't belong as well. 
And this is critically important. Why would they ask him the question whether he knew John Lear? And the obvious thing was that they knew that he was friends with John Lear. And as I pointed out, this is 1988. John Lear is famous for UFOs, for conspiracy theory stuff, uh, was very prominent and was very outspoken about the things that he believed. He was very honest, but very outspoken about what he was saying. You bring in Bob Lazar into the equation, into this interview, you set up the relationship, and you have John, you have um, Robert Lazar, who is kind of a strange figure, but maybe perfect for the job that they wanted to do. What John Lear had stated was that in the summer of 88, when this thing first started a few months before, that he had had this sort of uh, argument with Lazar about UFOs and about what was going on at Los Alamos, and that Lazar had given John Lear his resume. And John said on that resume he could see these two degrees. One was supposedly from Caltech, one was from MIT, and they were master's degrees. Now, a whole series of people have gone to try to verify this background. And some people think it's a little bit of out of bounds. I don't think it's out of bounds because nobody has been able to verify this background that he did have these two degrees. Now maybe he had them, but most people think that he didn't have them and that he had padded his resume as the expression goes. So if he had given that to um, John Lear and he had put on these two master's degrees that he didn't have, he would be a perfect candidate for plausible deniability if you were to put him on Area 51 at S4. Because if you want the story out, this goes back to my original slide, if you go back to the original thing and you say, if you want full disclosure, if you want the story out, you go to the New York Times, Washington Post, you go to the editor, you give them the photographs, pictures of the aliens, you give them all the documents, and if you want to cover up, you just shut up. But if you want to sort of put the story out there where you're able to pull the story back, what you're going to use is people who have plausible deniability. People who, when the story comes out, will sort of self-destruct. It's almost like this present um, debate about Donald Trump and, and Russia, about whether the Russians have financial things that they are holding that they know about Donald Trump or this story with the prostitutes when Donald Trump was there a number of years ago. When you're working in, in the intelligence field and these sort of things, you really don't care. In fact, the things that people have that may be seen as bad are actually advantages that they work to your benefit. So we have a guy who potentially didn't have these two degrees. And I talked to a number of people at the time and, and George Knapp looked into this. George Knapp was not able to verify the two degrees. I talked to a guy by the name of Scott McKenzie, who 
It's been many years, but I think that he was a private investigator who had been hired by the other TV station in Las Vegas. I talked to him at length, and this was in 1989 I talked to him. And I've got the transcripts of his interview. And he was very adamant that he had spent a lot of time looking into this thing about the degrees and that Mr. Lazar did not have these degrees. So we have a situation where a guy is, doesn't have the degrees. So why would you put him on the base if he doesn't have the proper credentials? And the answer is because it's a very controversial story. And when it comes out, my impression is what they want is a character where when the story comes out, everybody will talk about it. And then when everybody finds out that Bob Lazar doesn't have the two degrees, the story just blows up and everybody says, oh, it's a hoax. Everybody runs for the hills and the story still gets out, but nobody really fully believes it. They do this partial disclosure. You take information, you surround it with disinformation, and you put it out. The other thing about Robert Lazar that a lot of people, um, well, I guess people do realize, he was a very sort of strange character. He drew, he, um, he blew up stuff. He would you know, go out to the desert and blow up stuff. He uh, had jet cars. He had in, you know, rocket things on his cars. He had a, claimed to have a 30-foot a uh, cyclotron at his house. He flew a pirate flag over his house. Um, he was involved in um, the prostitution situation in, in Las Vegas. Um, his first wife, there was a very difficult story with his first wife. Uh, he had uh, filed bankruptcy. Uh, the IRS was coming after him. And so you have this type of figure who is applying for a job. And when he did the interview or when he did the phone call with Edward Teller, the reports I heard was that he asked Edward, Edward Teller had asked him, do you want to work? at Livermore, and that's where Teller was in California, or do you want to work up at, at the test site? And Lazar said he would like to work up at the test site. So they bring him into this interview. They ask him, what's your relationship to John Lear? And then they basically say to him, we've got this job for you, but you're actually overqualified for the job even though if he didn't have the two master's degree, he basically had high school education. So they say, you don't, you're not qualified, but we've got something special for you. And basically you, you start with this ultimate red flag where they stick them on the base at S4. There's thousands of employees at the test site up at, at Groom Lake at, at area 51. And he gets to work with 22 scientists working on UFOs and the claim was that they brought him on as a senior scientist. Now this is a major red flag because he doesn't have the degrees, doesn't have a PhD, appears not to have the master's degrees and to bring him on as a, as a red flag. Now I worked in the government and I basically know that a lot of the government stuff works like seniority that he was at the time, whatever he was, probably not even 30 years old. He's going on as a senior scientist. Senior scientist would be somebody who'd run a lab for a number of years. And so the idea that he's coming on as a senior scientist is also a red flag.
this is um, what John had had told me, and I had a lot of correspondence with John Lear at the time. Um, and he so this is what John wrote. So then it was like in November of '88, and I remember Bob going for the interviews at EG and G, and he told us exactly what they had asked him in the interviews, and it was very technical. And he said he did really good at all of them because he really knew. He was very proud of himself. And he said in the second interview, the first question was, what's your relationship with John Lear? And what do you know about him? And Bob said, talking to me, he said, I told them that I do know John Lear. I go over to his house. I think he sticks his nose in places where it doesn't belong. And then he said, what I didn't tell them was I also like to stick my noses in places where it doesn't belong. So the idea, if you want to understand Area 51, what it appeared was they wanted to put him on and give him access to material, which he would then take back to John Lear because he was friends with John Lear. And they knew that this guy who was you know, sort of not your ordinary type of person would go back and tell John Lear. And as you will see, that's exactly what happened. And John Lear is a, a lot like me. John Lear said, he actually admit, he actually confirms and admits that this is probably true. This theory is probably true. He said the reason that they would have tell the stuff to Bob Lazar to tell me is because I would blab it to everyone. So John has the impression to me, it's no use keeping this stuff secret. We should just tell the people. So John would tell everybody what Robert Lazar was telling him. And then when everybody found out that he didn't have the degrees and that he had the bankruptcy and all this other stuff, the whole story would blow up and they could walk away from the story. And as you'll see, that happened, but then it backfired on them. The other thing is, as I mentioned before, Bob Lazar had not worked at a lab at Los Alamos since 1983. It was five years later. So it's very doubtful that he had a, still had a security clearance. So he goes on, he makes the phone call to um, Edward Teller about the middle of November, three weeks after this big documentary at the end of the Reagan administration. And he goes up and he does the two interviews, the three interviews, whichever it was. And they hire him. And he's on the base three weeks later. There's no waiting period. Now, when it comes to security clearances, if you look today, if you look it up on the internet, you'll see that the average time to get a security clearance, to do all the checks and all the stuff for security clearance, is 534 days. Bob Lazar was working at the most highly classified section of the most highly classified top secret base in the United States with his very high level Q clearance with only 22 other people with his ultra top secret security clearance three weeks after he was interviewed. So the fact that he may not even had a security clearance when he went on there a proper security clearance. Now he was being investigated because George Knapp looked into this and they had this fellow that they confirmed 
from, I think it was the uh, federal investigation agency who was investigating for the security clearance. So they were investigating. Now, whether they were investigating because they wanted people to think they were investigating that they were going through this, the fact was that he was on the base days after his interview and they take him up to the most highly classified section. And they would take him up on these planes, these Janet planes that would fly out of Las Vegas that if you go to um, the one hotel, you can actually watch them taking off from, uh, from the, from the uh, McCarran Air Force Base. So what happens is he goes up there at the beginning of December of 1988. Now, Bob is very clear that he only worked there from December 1988 until April of 1989. The date that is generally put out by John Lear is December 6th. Now, whether he was there on that day or the day before, John Lear tells the story. And this is where it fits in with this red flag about what did they want, why did they put a guy who appeared not to have the degrees that he had, who was kind of had all these sort of skeletons in the closet. Why would they put him up on this very high secure area of the base, call him a senior scientist. John tells a story sitting in his house. He doesn't even realize that Lazar has gone up to the base yet. He's signing checks at his desk. Bob Lazar walks in and Bob Lazar said, John, I saw a saucer today. And John's told the story many times. And John said to him, you seen a saucer? You're up at the base? And he said, yeah, I was there. And John said, so is it theirs or are they ours? And then Bob Lazar said, they're theirs. And John Lear loses it. He goes, well, what the hell are you doing here? Like, well, you, you know they're watching us. You know they're watching me. Like, what, what the hell are you coming in here and telling me for? Go back to the base, work there for six months, and then come and tell me what's going on. And Bob Lazar says, no, John, you took a lot of crap. And I'm going to tell you what's going on, what I saw. So they go out into the backyard, away from, because they believe the, John believes the house is being monitored. They go into the backyard. And Bob Lazar tells them what happens at the base. So the story that goes around, you'll hear a lot of stories that Bob Lazar worked at the base. He did all this work and then he felt threatened that he wasn't safe, that they were trying to get him. They were trying to kill him. And that's why he started to talk. The actual fact of the matter is Bob Lazar talked on the very first day that he was on the base. Now, whether that's intentional, whether Bob Lazar in, was actually hired to do this, to feed this stuff to, to John Lear, or whether he just couldn't keep his mouth shut and he went. And that was one of the questions I asked John. As I said to John, I said, John, do you think that, this, that he actually may have set this thing up to tell you this, that he knew all along? that he was going to do this, that this was part of the plan for him to tell you? And John said, I actually asked him that question. And John said that Robert Lazar told him, no, I didn't do it intentionally, but if they had asked me, I might have done it. 
So this is always one of the things that sticks in the back of my mind is he passed the lie detector tests. So which appears that he was on the base, that he did see all this sort of stuff. But the idea is why would he, when he was with John Lear, why would he give John Lear his resume? And why would he start talking on the very first day, unless he was very, very loose with his material, knowing that John Lear's house was being monitored. And when Lazar went up there, he had to sign papers that basically spelled out the fact that his phone would be tapped and that he would be watched. So he knew they were watching him. So why would he on day number one of going to the base, go back to John Lear's house and tell him exactly what had happened? There was no threat at this point. He had not been threatened by anybody. That didn't happen until way later, which I'll get into later. There's no threats and already he's talking. He does talk about a lot of stuff. He talks about the uh, working on the base from December 88 to April of 89. He talks about the, uh, the patch, the, 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 the tag that he wore with the MAJ, the magic. And this goes to the whole MJ-12, which I'll, I'll not get into, the idea that, um, that this was part of the operation. He talked about the U.S. Department of Navy Intelligence running the thing. And I know when I worked with the, uh, on the Canadian story, I had gone because the Canadians were getting information from the United States and I had gone to Wilbur Smith who ran the Canadian government flying saucer program and asked him who was Wilbur dealing with in the United States? Who was feeding him material? And most of the people that I talked to um, believed that Wilbur was dealing with the Navy. So there's always been this story inside the UFO community that the Navy has a lot to do with, with the UFO program. And it would be a perfect cover that they would do this. So this is the idea that he had, he had done the, 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 the program and that was run, being run by the Navy. The one ex explanation that sort of makes sense as to why the Navy would have such a heavy involvement was the UFO story actually starts um, in 47, but before the Air Force is actually created. And if you look in 46, 47, there were sightings. The vast, all the, the research and development money for weapons for the U.S. military was coming through the Department of the Navy. There was Army, Navy, that's all there was. There was no Air Force yet. And you get in a situation of government where there's people fighting among each other as for money. So the idea would be that if the Navy was basically running the UFO program in 46 and early 47, just because of the Air Force comes along, it doesn't mean they're going to hand over all their money and all their power. They're, they're going to say, this is our program. We've got this program and you can go to hell. And so that may be why the Navy was sort of involved, but there's been a number of stories about the Navy being involved in the, uh, the research, the sort of the, the back engineering research stuff. So Bob Lazar talks about this thing and talks about this uh, MAJ uh, that he had on his patch and that his boss had Majestic on his patch. Now, another red flag that, 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 that comes up is the documents. So the very first day that Lazar goes up there, it's either the first day or second day, he goes up there, and he goes back and he tells John Lear everything. So basically, it's his top secret material. He should be going to jail. He should be arrested. 
they have to know. And in fact, when he finally gets debriefed in, a- in, a- in April of 1989, they actually play tapes of his, of his wife who's having an affair. And they had an incident that um, Huff and um, Lazar had these code names and they took it off the MUFON thing. So um, um, Gene Huff was, was Goofon and um, Bob Lazar was Bufon. So they had these code names. And at one point, according to John, uh, Bob Lazar, the military had, or the, the, his bosses had come to him and said, who's these two people you're talking about on the phone? So he knew they were monitoring him, and yet he was, he was still talking. The next big red flag is, I did training for people. And anybody who's done training knows that on day one or day two, you do not sit somebody down and tell them everything that's going on. You basically show them where the washroom is, you show them where the lunchroom is, that's it on like the first couple of days that you're working. That's not what happened to Bob Lazar. He goes onto the base, they show him the, the, where the saucers are being kept, and I believe it was on the second day he goes in, and they sit him down, and they give him 121 documents to read. And these are in blue covers, and that's basically everything about all the UFO programs. Now, anybody knows anything about security, and especially the whole idea of the UFO security, is that if you're running a top secret program, it's compartmentalized, that you only know what you need to know to do your job. You don't get to know the whole program. I remember Bill Moore telling me in the 1980s, he had one guy who had contacted him and the guy was working on some sort of program and he was absolutely convinced that this had to do with UFOs, but he really didn't know. He had some job that he was doing and he was passing it on to somebody else and he had contacted Bill Moore to say, I think I'm part of a program. I think I'm part of something, but I really don't know how it fits in. That's, the how, that's how it should work, that you only know what you, what, you, what you need to know. And you see all sorts of examples of, of, of this kind of thing where there was a story about Kit Green, that Kit Green, I had been told the story, right or not, that he had wanted to be read in on the, because he's a physiologist, he wanted to be read in on the, the alien autopsy type stuff and that he couldn't get read in. He knew a lot of the stuff. And you hear these stories about the Avery, people in these, they had the bird names, they were either military or intelligence people who had interacted with the phenomena, who at one point in their career had, had some sort of thing, but they didn't know the whole story. And so they were down the rabbit hole, like you and I, and they're just trying to figure out what's going on. They don't know the whole story, and that's how it works, compartmentalized. So the big red flag is why would they sit Bob Lazar down on day number two at Area 51 and let him read about, see photographs of uh, um, dead aliens, uh, see pictures of, uh, you know, time travel or, you know, time travel type stuff, these different programs. uh, And what you saw was that a lot of the material that he saw in these briefings in December of 1988 is exactly the same material that was being put out 
two months before in UFO Cover Up Live in October. The whole thing about the live alien, the thing about uh, the, 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 the grays. In fact, um, when you come down to it, what you have to remember at this very point, this is 1989, this is when they have the two conferences. Bill, uh, John Lear gets pulled from the one conference of bringing the speakers in. He sets up his own conference. At the MUFON conference, Bill Moore makes this very, very famous speech in 1989. And at that speech, he writes it. And it's, he reads the speech so that nobody will be able to say, he said this, and just to prove what I said. That's why he read the speech. And in that speech, that's when he makes his very famous speech. And he said, I got inside the government, and what I'm telling you is that the UFO community is being taken for a ride. They're running disinformation. They're putting a bunch of garbage into the UFO community. And basically what happened is people were furious that Bill Moore had declared that he had gotten inside the government. He had secretly not told anybody, and he was operating in there and watching what they were doing. And basically they got the, the, the cross and the nails, and they crucified Bill Moore for making this, this presentation. And Bill Moore said, basically, I was just telling them that they're being had, and I took the rap for it. And what he stated was that a lot of the stuff that, that, that Lazar had seen on the second day was the same stuff that he had seen AFOSI, counterintelligence, putting out into the UFO community to people like Paul Benowitz. In fact, Bill Moore said, and Bill Moore was a very sharp researcher. He said the first time he ever heard the word gray, referring to the grays, was during this counterintelligence operation by AFOSI. So what we have to remember is that a lot of times the material that we're being fed is being fed to us by the government. So the idea of the grays may have come from the U.S. government. The other term that that's, that's, we know for a fact came from the U.S. government is the term UFO. It came out in 1952 by Rupeld, who was running Blue Book, the first director of Blue Book, and he came up with the term UFO. And the way that the reason they used the word UFO, according to me, was before then it was called flying saucers and flying discs, which implied that this was a craft, that this was a machine. So they changed the term to UFO so you could basically talk about it and it didn't imply anything. It could be anything. It could be a bird. It could be a plane. It could be swamp gas. It could be this. It could be that. Flying discs, flying saucers imply. The same as with the to the stars thing, what you see is they change the name again. And I believe it comes from Britain. They turned it to UAPs, and that was a British term that was being used by the Brits. And it was brought across by uh, Nick Pope, and Nick Pope was dealing with John Podesta and Hillary Clinton in that camp, and John Podesta picked up on the UAP thing, and that's why you saw Hillary Clinton go on the Kimmel show in 2015, or 2016 in, in spring, and say, we've got a new name, we've got a new nomenclature, it's called UAP, not UFO. So you see these, these things are being put in. So when Bob Lazar is sitting there reading these documents, he's seeing what you see is a lot of the same stuff that was put, being put out by AFOSI and that John Lear was putting out, and it would match. In fact, the one document that really sort of nails it down 
is one of the documents that Bob Lazar claimed he saw was a document that talked about the underground shootout. Now, this was a story that was very famous at the time. We had heard about it. This is one of the big stories that John was talking about. This is the the Schneider report, the the thing about the all the special forces guys. Uh, they, somebody has a gun underground, and the aliens are there, and you're not supposed to have a gun, and the shootout starts, and they send the special forces in at Dulcie Base, and all these special forces guys are killed. Well, one of the documents that Bob Lazar read of these 121 documents, the second day he's on the base, is exactly that document, except this document says it happened at Area 51, not at Dulcie. And this is one of the things that I maintain that they do in this field in order to put the information out is you put out two different stories so that you're, you're, you're not telling the truth, you're not lying, you're just putting the story out so that all the researchers are bumping into each other. The two prime examples are, I had studied the, the Holloman Air Force Base story that was put out. The film had been given to Bob Emmeniger and Alan Sandler in the 1970s. And they had this film and they put it into, eight seconds of it into the, this documentary called UFOs Past, Present, and Future. And it was provided to them by a guy named Paul Shardle, who was a security manager at Norton Air Force Base. And Bob Emmenegger was told by Paul Shardle, great detail, six o'clock in the morning, four different camera crews, uh, where the, where the, which building the craft was stored in, everything in great detail. And what he had said that the incident had occurred in May of 1971. So that's what Bob put out. This incident of a landing of a craft and aliens getting out of it and interacting with base officials occurred in 1971. And they had the film. Richard Doty brings Linda Howe onto Kirkland Air Force Base in April of 1983 and says to her, no, the date was December of 1964. And so what you have now is Linda and I with a disagreement about what date was the film. And instead of determining there was a film, and we sit there and argue about what the date was. The same as when the MJ-12 document was leaked, it was called the Majestic 12. Linda was brought to uh, Kirkland Air Force Base, met with Richard Doty in April of 1983, and Richard Doty told her, no, it's not majestic, it's majority 12. So this is what you do, is you have these, these various terms. So you have this document that, that Lazar has, which is identical document, except it changes some of the facts. So you get the idea that, that something happened, or it's, it's straight out disinformation, and the story gets into the UFO community and it passes, passes around. So this is one of the big, the big red flags to me, is when you're on, on a base, the second day, you don't get to see all the documents when you are basically just sort of a, a junior person who's just starting. Now, all the stuff came about the threats. You hear all these stories about uh, Bob Lazar um, having his car shot at, coming onto uh, an on-ramp onto the freeway in Las Vegas and stuff. What you got to remember is that none of this happened until after he went public with KLS TV. He didn't go public until then. There's a bunch of stories, and this happens, it's happened with the Benowitz thing, and it happened here, is they start this story about, oh, the reason we're doing this thing, the reason we've got this, uh, we're, we're, we're running this 
operation is we're trying to um, tag the Russians. The, the Russians were trying to 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 uh, just to throw them off. The story at Area 51 is that the Russians had been part of the program and that they had been kicked out. And there was a story that Bob Lazar told was that they were going to give him this gun and they were going to, uh, because he might get kidnapped by the Russians. Well, this is the same nonsense as the whole thing about Paul Benowitz, was we're trying to throw off the Russians as if the Russians are totally stupid and we have these stories that we have all this kind of stuff. So Bob Lazar had the, the, the shooting on the freeway where his car gets shot. And I always say, I mean, and, and I think even Bob mentioned this. I mean, if they want to kill you, they're going to kill you. I mean, they're not going to miss. They're not going to. So the, the thing is, are they trying to kill him or are they, do they want him to think he's being killed? Now, George Knapp tells a number of stories, and he did an extensive investigation. And the one was this thing where they had gone, I think, to the spa, and Lazar was kind of a strange person in terms of the weapons he had. He had an Uzi in his glove compartment. And when he came out of the, the, the spa or wherever it was, the, the door of the car was, was open and the Uzi was sitting on the front seat of the, the car. And so it was this kind of things where they're trying to sort of put across a message, but it's not a message. Um, it's the old idea that, that if they want to kill you, they're not going to warn you. So in the early days, Knapp had done a lot of investigation and he had actually made a phone call because the whole story was being told by Bob Lazar that he had been at this place called S4. So at the time, George Knapp knew the public affairs guy at Nellis Air Force Base, and he had phoned him, and before they really knew the alert as to what was going on that this guy was sort of talking, and said, do you have an S4 on the base? And the, the guy had actually said, Yes, in fact, we've got more than one S4 there. Now, when they redid it, when Jeremy Corbell does the documentary, they do it again. Then they actually phone again, and this time they're told, no, there's no S4. It's not on the map. No, we don't have it on the map, which is an indirect way of sort of denying that there's an S4. So Knapp confirms that there's an S4 on the base, and he goes through a lot of investigation of talking to a bunch of people, which I'll get to. Now, one of the big stories of the, um, the um, Bob Lazar Area 51 is the whole thing about the 115. And I talked to John when this thing was going on. We knew about the 115. Uh, we had done a lot of investigation we had heard some stories that they were telling and we were trying to confirm this. Some of this um, hasn't been put out. So I'll sort of tell you what we sort of came up with. And this is this whole idea that it's, you know, it's this, um, this, this uh, element that, that is in a, a region of stability that, that right now it's not stable, but if you get a certain isotope, this thing uh, will become stable. And one of the things that we had heard was they had, this stuff was this orange stuff and that Bob had some of this stuff. He had, he had taken some of this stuff, and some of the stories say that he took it from the base. Uh, the story that we had was, no, it didn't come from the base. Uh, it had come, we believe, from Los Alamos, and they, had, they would um, uh, cut this stuff 
to make little tiny triangles that they would stick in this this uh, sort of a, a power plant thing, and that was where they were cutting it. And that and so it, it was a lab, but I believe it was Los Alamos because um, Lazar still had contacts at Los Alamos. So this is where this material was coming, and he had it. And John Lear talks about the fact that they had uh, done a test in Bob Lazar's bedroom with this stuff, and to to demonstrate the 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 one one five. So it came in these. Um, sort of triangles, and then there was the the bizarre thing about the um, um, the sort of the power plant that is supposedly was part of this UFO thing. It looked like sort of a a semicircular, a half dome metal thing uh, um, that they had. Now I'll read to you what Bob or what John Lear told me in um, 1990 in a letter that he sent to me. And this, uh, I haven't heard anybody talk about this. Some of it they've talked about, but some of it is, is actually kind of revealing. This is what John Lear wrote to me. The 115 was kept in Bob's laboratory at his house for three or four months. It was stolen back by the government the third night of the NAP UFO special as it appears in its lead casing. So when John, when, when Bob Lazar goes public, he goes, the first interview is backlit. He calls himself Dennis. The second interview, they identify him as Bob Lazar, and then they do a special. So they do a, a series of shows, which is one of the biggest shows ever. And according to John Lear, and I'll read it again, it was stolen back by the government on the third night of the NAP UFO special as it appears in its lead casing in one of the background in, in the background of one of the shots of Bob. So what he's saying that the lead casing containing the air, the 115 was actually on the set in the camera shot. Now we were never, never able to find the camera shot. But this is what I was told. We did several experiments uh, of the of the, it with which we have videotape. These included putting the 115 in a cloud chamber and uh, putting radioactive particles across the 115 to demonstrate the attraction or the deflection. I held the lead-encased 115 many times. We also had a number of other items from the saucer which were stolen back also. So this is something I really haven't heard, but that was in a letter John Lear sent to me in um, 1990. Now here's something by uh, Lazar. Yeah, we did get it. He's talking about the 115. For people that saw the KLS tape where George Knapp points and says it's stored in containers similar to this one. Well, that was one. And that's basically what John Lear was telling me in the letter as well, is that it was on the set. And according to Lazar, he said, George Knapp points and says it's stored in containers similar to this one. Well, that was one that he was pointing at the actual container where it was. And that's why we put it on there. It was kind of a jab at them, the government, to say, hey, we got it. 
that was the real ace in the hole because if anyone came out and jumped on it and said this is garbage and everything, you know, we just pop that out and say, go and check this, referring to the videotape. 2017, there's this story about Lazar and Corbell go deep into the woods to discuss claims that Lazar made when he first went public, that he had managed to steal a piece of Element 115. The then undiscovered element that Lazar said fueled the reactors. The next day, Lazar's business was raided by the FBI. This is again one of these things. Do they raid him because they're looking for the material? Or do they raid him because they want to hype the show? It would appear that they already knew early on. And I, this is just going back as this happened 30 years ago. I remember the fact they had more than one piece. They had the one that was stolen back. They had another one. And I have to think how I'm going to phrase this. John told me, we know where it is. We hit it. We know where it is, but you couldn't get, you wouldn't be able to access it. And I always thought that maybe they'd put it in a foundation of a, of a hotel or something in the cement or something. That's what it sounded like. We had it. We hit it. We know where it is, but you can't access it. I think that's basically what he told. So there was this idea that, yes, there still was, there still may be a piece of 115 that hasn't been recovered. But because all this stuff was being monitored, all these people being monitored, I tend to think that they may, they, they must have known where this kind of stuff was. But there, my impression was that there was more than one piece that they had. And they've always been very hesitant to talk about it and I really can't blame them because um, this was, but this was being told to me then and you can see that Corbell is talking about it as well and I think Knapp is talking about it as well that, that uh, they did have, that Bob Lazar did have possession of at least one piece or maybe more than one piece and other stuff uh, from wherever he was getting it from. Finally, on the 115, uh, there is a, an article that appeared on the Internet, and it was written by George D. Hathaway, who was an engineer in um, Toronto, Canada. And he was the author of one of the defense, in, two of the defense intelligence reference documents. These were documents that were identified as being part of the TTSA, or the, the um, ATIP program, um, ASAP. And the authors of these various papers on various technical scientific issues on space propulsion and things like this were asked to imagine our earthly technology and extrapolate it out to 2050 and compare what we might have by then against what we have as of today. So Hathaway wrote apparently two of these papers and he writes an article on the engineering view of Lazar's anti-gravity physics. And he is very skeptical of the 115 idea of the, the, the gravity uh, idea that, that Lazar had put out and so that is one of the things we've got to consider because 
if it's true that Lazar was only on the base six times, seven times, then his concept of 115 uh, would have come from something he had read more than something he had discovered. And if that's true that he read it, um, it, like the 121 papers that he read early on, may simply be something that they made up for him to pass on to uh, John Lear. Now, one of the other really big red flags is the idea of the three tests. If it's true that Bob Lazar was only there a number of times, the story, as I understood it, was he went out there about December the 6th, 1988, um, and because he wasn't really um, going out there very much, he was starting to get frustrated. And so in starting March the 22nd, 1989, he hasn't been called to the base for quite a while. And he gets frustrated, and it's that point that he approaches Gene Huff, and he talks to Gene Huff about hinting that he is going to show him something at the base. Now, one of the big red flags is if Bob Lazar was just a part-time person that they were out there just giving him material, why would they tell him when they were running the test? Why would they tell him this top-secret test? He, it's a compartmentalized operation. He doesn't need to know when the test is. He's not involved in the test. He's only been there a few times, and yet they tell him when the test is. And then he's not called out there, and he gets frustrated, and he approaches Gene Huff. Then um, John Lear gets involved, and he starts to take the th the these the, the two men and some other people to the test site. And to tie this into the whole story about the fact that he was threatened, um, John Lear on the first night, March the twenty second. They have a motorhome. John's motorhome is out there. And they see, John has an 8-inch telescope. And they see the object coming, and it's doing sort of a step pattern where it's, it's, it's sort of bouncing from one step to another. Um, John is watching it through a telescope. They're all excited. This goes on for a few minutes. And they forget to film. The camera is sitting on the bumper of the motorhome. They forget to film. But they do film before uh, – they do film – that day and during that film they actually are talking and they're making jokes and they're actually referring to the fact uh, Robert Lazar actually identifies himself on the on the video and they make these sort of jokes about the fact that um, referring to Bob Lazar as the former Bob Lazar that they'll kill him once they find once this tape gets out so we have a situation where it was identified that, that he was being threatened. Uh, I maintain the threats did not happen until after Bob Lazar takes the three, uh, a bunch of people out to the site on three different nights. And um, so on the first night, March the 22nd, it's a Wednesday night. And the story is that they do this test every Wednesday night. Um, they go to the Tickaboo Valley to do the disc test. And the observers were Robert Lazar 
his wife, Tracy Lazar. There's a number of stories that said that Bob was in this sort of compartmentalized thing and he couldn't talk to his wife. Uh, well, his wife was there on the first night of the test. So he took his wife out there. Gene Huff was there and so was John Lear. And they were using John Lear's uh, RV. And John was the only one that actually saw the disc shape looking through the telescope. The others didn't look through the telescope. And the sighting took place for about seven minutes. Now, in my first book in 1991, where I talk about this, I actually, I, it actually mentions in there that on the 24th, I talked to John Lear. And he told me about this um, incident at the, um, the base where they viewed this test. And I'm pretty sure, although I can't find the tape, that I actually think I actually talked as well to um, John Lear on April the 6th, the, the day after they were caught at the, at the, um, uh, the test when, when it was run on April the 5th. Uh, but I, I, can't find the, I can't find the tape, so we'll leave that. So they do the first night. Um, this is on Wednesday night. Then on the second time, Bob Lazar takes um, them out to the test site to watch the test being done. This is March the 29th. This is a week later, 1989. Uh, on this night, uh, I believe John told me he was flying. He was, he was a Lockheed 10-11 pilot. He was actually flying to Minneapolis that night, so he wasn't there. So the observers were Robert Lazar, Tracy Lazar, Gene Huff, and um, Jim Taglianetti. And they took a videotape of a moving light with a timestamp of 8.30 shown on the tape. So that was the second night they get the, the, the film. Uh, they come back and um, show it to John. And so it's the third night. It's April, April the 5th. For the third night, third Wednesday in a row, Robert Lazar takes everybody out to watch the test. And it's that night when they get caught by the camo dudes. And John has told the story 20 times. I'm not really going to repeat the whole story. Uh, that they were there and they um, saw, saw the camo dudes. Uh, they were uh, realized something was going on. Bob Lazar goes into the desert. He leaves the group uh, with his gun and uh, the, the camo dudes uh, talk to um, the, all these people. And actually, uh, Tracy Lazar's sister was there as well. And um, they basically make up the story that they're observing and so they, the, the, the camo dudes go back and um, John and Lazar and, Lee and Huff all think that the, they've, they've left. And meanwhile, they're actually just moved sort of into the darkness and they've actually are listening to their conversation. And it's at that point where uh, they uh, are, they are confronted when they get to the, to the, um, the road. They're told to go to the road, and they get caught by the uh, the sheriff of the area, and that's when the sheriff wants to know why is there um, one more person in the car than there was when the uh, security at Area 51 stopped them. And this goes on for quite a while. There's a standoff on the highway. It goes on for many, many minutes, and they're finally released. And it's the very next day that. Bob Lazar is moved to Indian Springs. His handler tells him today we're not going to take the plane. Uh, we're going to Indian Springs. And it's at that point where they go and they put the gun to Bob, to Bob Lazar's head. And they say, when we told you this was top secret, 
that didn't mean to bring all your friends out to the base to watch the test. I maintain this is a major red flag. I maintain that he was told when the test was because they wanted him to bring everybody out to see the test. This was part of the thing. They wanted John Lear there. John Lear was going to spread the word. And that's exactly what happened. John Lear did spread the word. And the the thing that confirms all this, and I'll leave it at this and we'll go to part three. Uh, what confirms this is the fact that during this briefing, Bob Lazar was not fired. He was not arrested. And he was actually, as I'll explain in part three, he was actually invited back to Area 51 to work. And it was Bob Lazar who actually turned down the offer to go back to Area 51. He was never fired. He was never let go. He was actually invited to go back to the base. You've been listening to The Cameron Files with Grant Cameron. Any rebroadcast or duplication of this program or program content without express written permission from Grant Cameron himself or the KGRADB is strictly prohibited. The Cameron Files, in direct cooperation with the internet website beyondpresidentialufo.com. That's this week's episode of the Paranormal UFO Consciousness Podcast. I'm your host, Grant Cameron, hoping that you will join me for upcoming episodes. Links to my YouTube interviews, books, and my Facebook sites are in the show notes. If you love the podcast or learn something valuable, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, or give a review on today's episode. If you would like a certain paranormal subject dealt with in the future, please let us know. Until next time, watch this space, and thank you so much for listening.